we look into the Word of God, Luke chapter 5, one writer writes this. It had been a long night on the Sea of Galilee, one that could make a fisherman curse his trade. Under a pallid moon, Simon and his crew had fed their nets into the inky water, stringing them into a circle hundreds of feet around. The light from their torches was supposed to attract the fish into their trap, but when they drew in their bottom lines, the pulling was strangely easy. Straining their eyes, they searched the black water for any splash of life. But the sea was tauntingly still that night, and the nets repeatedly came up empty. Hour after hour, the men repeated the ritual, first here, then there, then across the bay, still nothing. The night was turning misty gray as the shivering men pulled in the nets for the last time and finally rowed for home. You will not read that in the passage of Scripture that we've turned to, Luke 5, but that is apparently what had taken place as we pick up the story, the account, in verse 1. Peter, his brother Andrew, and his business partners, James and John, had spent the night fishing with dragnets. The group had sweat through the night without so much as one fish. So at dawn, they beached their boats, ate breakfast, and under a warming sun, engaged in a most tedious but necessary process of washing and then mending and arranging their nets for drying. And then, once dry, they would fold the nets and place about a half ton worth of nets back into the boats for the coming night. And with that, we come to this passage of Scripture, and in this setting, two scenes are going to converge. It begins, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening. For weeks, Jesus had been preaching in the area, healing sick, casting out demons. People had been crowding around him often. And now this morning, they are eager to hear him spill out more food from heaven. And it was all the teacher could do to find a few spare moments for himself, but he wants to address the crowd because the news of his whereabouts had so spread that the crowd came running and on this morning on a sandy beach along the Sea of Galilee, yearning to hear the people Jesus is going to attempt to try to address the whole crowd. He asks Simon to turn his boat into a floating platform and then cast a little way from shore. And there, sitting where the sound could carry, Simon and his fishing partners will consent, and Jesus will speak to them, to that audience. But in that boat, Simon and his partners would become a captive audience, literally. And Jesus will present them an object lesson so vivid they'll never, ever, ever forget that experience. This is not the Lord's first calling upon their life. If you were to read back in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, or in Matthew chapter 4, you would see that Jesus had chosen or drawn these men to him earlier to be followers of him. But in this passage, Luke alone records a final call where they abandon everything finally, fully, and become full-time disciples of Jesus Christ. The Lord in this passage seems to target Peter in particular since he is going to become the recognized leader of that band of 12. But there's a lesson that's going to come out of this passage, and it unfolds for Peter, for you, for me. And this morning in this passage, Peter will learn something, you and I will learn something. 
And that is that you and I ought to view our life, our life of service to Christ with the same sense of commitment that Peter does. Folks, listen, your commitment is, it will be seen in response to a command that Jesus had issued and he's implying again here. And the command is, come, follow me. Come, follow Jesus Christ. Simple question, what does it mean to follow him, to be committed to follow him? Three implications in this passage, and if you'd follow along with me. The first is found in verses 1, 2, and 3. And in order to follow the Lord implies that, number one, you are giving him initial access to your life. You are giving him initial access. To do so implies that you have to be in the right place. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing upon him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. You have to be in the right place to hear the Lord speak to you, to hear the word of God, open to the word of God, initial access. On this and other occasions, the crowd pushes upon Jesus, standing now at the water's edge, Jesus is doing something. He is preaching the Word of God. When you and I read that little phrase in verse 1, the Word of God, for you and I have been reading the Bible for centuries now in Christendom. To us, reading or hearing the Word of God implies or is synonymous with the Bible. But that's not what is brought out in this passage. Luke uses a phrase here. He uses it four times in this gospel, 14 times all in his writing between this and the book of Acts. This is the first time. This one's an unusual expression, the Word of God. For Greek students, there's a syntax here, a subjective genitive. doesn't mean anything to most of us unless you spend time studying that language. But when you do, it jumps off the page. Listening to the Word, listen, it translates like this. The Word from God. Something very important is implied by Dr. Luke, and that is indicating the source. People were learning and hearing as the people were listening to Jesus speak. It was words coming directly from God. When Jesus spoke, they literally heard God speaking. It was the good news then of forgiveness, of salvation, of eternal life. John 5, 24, truly, truly. I say to you, he who hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. You see, Jesus' teaching and preaching was strikingly different than any of the rabbis who were teaching in his day, whose authority was always connected to quoting other rabbis. Jesus did not speak as an Old Testament scholar or as an Old Testament theologian, what he spoke was not philosophical speculation or rabbinic tradition. It was the voice of God. And when he spoke, he spoke with personal divine authority. Mark one twenty-seven. Jesus repeatedly taught that he'd been sent by God, and what he was saying was God's words. If you continue in my word, he says in John 8, 31, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Being in the right place, giving him initial access where you hear the word of God. 
And then you stop all activity to listen to him. You quiet your heart. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. Jesus speaks to Peter privately, singles out Peter, and they talk. I keep referring to him as Peter, but Peter is a nickname. It's translated from Cephas or Petros, the Greek word, meaning a stone, rock. He gave him a nickname. He called him Rocky, all right? For years we lived in Philadelphia and there was a movie. One, two, three, four, I don't know how many, but it was what? Rocky. And that's his nickname. Really, it is. He's calling him Rocky. When you refer to people, and it sounds like, well, you're not being sacred with the Word of God. Yeah, it is. His name was Rock. I'm going to call you Rock, Rocky. And that's the idea. See, in John 1.42, when Jesus first met Peter face to face, these were the first words he says. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone, rocky. Those were apparently the very first words Jesus ever said to him. It would become his nickname. And that nickname is significant. By nature, Simon was rather a brash, vacillating, undependable character. He was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing it. Jesus would change his name, it appears, because he wanted his nickname to be a perpetual reminder to him about who he should be. You should be solid like a stone. And from that point on, whenever Jesus called him, and whatever name he used, it sent a subtle message. If he called him Simon, he's signaling that he's acting like his old self. If he calls him Peter, Rock, Jesus was commending him for acting the way he should be acting. Tommy Lasorda, the former professional baseball manager who actually lived and grew up in an area just a few blocks from where we lived up in the Philadelphia area, became the baseball manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Lasorda tells the story of a skinny baseball pitcher who was new to the Dodgers minor league system. The skinny youngster was somewhat timid, but had an extraordinarily powerful and accurate arm. Lasorda was convinced that the young pitcher had the potential to be one of the greatest ever, but Lasorda says the young man needed to be more fierce, more competitive. He needed to lose his timidity. So Lasorda gave this skinny kid a nickname that was exactly the opposite of his personality. He called him Bulldog. And over the years, that's exactly what... Oral Hershiser became one of the most tenacious competitors who ever took the mound in the major leagues. That nickname became a perpetual reminder of what he ought to be. And before long, it shaped his whole attitude as a professional ball player. Simon needed to become a rock. And so that is what Jesus named him. And from then on, he could de- gently chide him or commend him, depending on whatever name he called him. Being open to the Lord so that you can hear, being open then to listen. And at Jesus' request, Peter gives him his boat to use. I'm at your disposal. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Been fishing all night. Hadn't caught a thing. They'd been working hard all night. 
So I don't know, as they sat out in that boat, how much attention Peter was actually paying to Jesus' message. Maybe dreaming. See, here's the Word of God. I don't know what's going through his mind, what distractions. Possibly spacing out somewhere because of the long night's work and sitting now motionless in a very warm sun. Whatever the case, Jesus is going to soon get his full attention. So I ask you a question. Come, follow me. Which implies giving him initial access. In other words, are you in? Are you at the place where God can get to you? Did he get to you this morning? Can he get to you? Are you listening to him day in, day out in his word? Giving him initial access. Giving him ultimate, complete, secondly, acquiescence to your life. To follow the Lord, to be committed, you give him initial access so he can work in and on your life through the word from God. But then you also give him ultimate acquiescence in our lives. To acquiesce, to consent, to comply without any protest. It means simply saying yes. When God can get to you, how do you respond, in other words? That's that second point here in verses 4 and 5. When he had finished speaking to the crowd, Jesus said to Simon, the verb here is singular, a second person singular, he's speaking to Simon. Simon, you do this. Put out into the deep water. And then he says to the entire crew, the verbiage shifts now to second person plural, and all of you cast the net over the side. Let out the nets for a catch. In all this, Peter does it willingly. In spite, first of all, ultimate acquiescence in spite of the nature of the request. F.B. Meyer, a writer of years ago, I love it whenever I do a biographical sketch to run to something Meyer writes. And he writes this. And if I can quote him, please give me your attention for a moment to listen to what this sage writes. It's excellent. Meyer says, quote, Peter had fished these waters from boyhood. There was nothing in this craft with which he was not familiar the habits of the fish, the hours and spots most suitable in the entire lake for taking them, the effect of the climatic conditions on this lake. In all this, he was proficient. He would have hotly resented any interference on the part of the other fishermen of his acquaintance. And now he finds himself suddenly confronted with a bidding which was contradicted by all of his experience contradicted by the universal maxims and practices of the generations and by the bitter failure of the preceding night, which now leaves him jaded, weary, completely out of heart. Meyer goes on to say, Peter would be prepared to obey the slightest precept that came from the master's lips, but how could one who had spent his days in the carpenter's workshop of a mountain village be at all competent to take command of a boat and direct the casting of a net? The morning was no time for fishing. The glare of light revealed the meshes of the nets, and the fish were to be found not in the deep, but in the shallower part of the lake. 
all the fishermen who might see him putting his boat out at such an hour, laden with nets and evidently prepared for fishing, would laugh and call him crazy. And then Meyer summarizes, But is it not thus with all who have been greatly used by Christ? You see, in spite of the nature of this request, he's going to give him ultimate acquiescence to his life. In Peter's mind, what did Jesus know about fishing? And so we read in verse 5, And Simon answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. Master, epistates, chief, commander. Well, your boss... It's a term of respect, respected title for someone who would be an authority. It doesn't imply anything divine at all. All Peter is saying is, okay, you're the boss. After all, what does he know about fishing but you're the boss? Uh, it was in my senior year at the University of Minnesota. My wife and I were working in, an, in a professional office complex in, in Minneapolis, and one of our workers, one of the other office mates there who had a, a fellow, a, an office near us, who was about five, six years older than me, and he had been a professional stockbroker and had come to work now where we were working. What was fascinating, and I got to appreciate about him, is, is this fellow whose name was Rowan actually had been a graduate of Duke University. He had graduated with a degree in political science and a degree in economics became a stockbroker, and I was working, we were working together in this professional office. And uh, while we were doing that, I learned something else, that Rowan actually went to Duke University under full scholarship, a tennis scholarship. And he achieved the position while at Duke University of being number two on Duke University's tennis team, which means he's good at tennis. And so I, I learned that, and uh, we struck up friendship. And on one occasion, I said to Rowan, I play tennis. I love to go with you. and play. Let's go out and play tennis. So over a noon hour, we went out to play tennis. And Rowan, because of his connections and because he'd done tennis exhibitions and whatnot in the Minneapolis area because of his skills, we went to a really nice court gym area. And uh, we started volleying the balls. And, and I, I noticed as we started volleying, the, the balls picked up a little more speed and they got closer to the net and we we're just warming up. I noticed the countenance on Rowan begins to change. And, and this warm, friendly guy starts, the f- smile's gone. And, and so he says, let's volley for serve. Bam! And he's serving, all right? And uh, that volley lasted once over the net. And he stood back at the baseline, took, just... And I'm looking at the form going, that's, wow, that's what a number two looks like, all right? But the ball came, I never saw it. I mean, it's 40 love, and I never saw any of those serves. The whole set, the whole match went that way. And, and, I, and, I, and I looked at all, the whole time we're playing, it's like, what's happened to my friend? It was like he looked differently when he put it got going. It was like he was demon-possessed. And, and we get in the car to drive away, and, uh, you know, and, and he's back, and now he's jovial Rowan again. And I, t- I said, Rowan, I really enjoyed playing tennis with you. He stopped me. He goes, Dave, I play tennis. You hit the ball. <laughs> the difference between knowing what you're doing and attempting it But then again, this is no ordinary carpenter. You see, if you just 
go up a few verses to chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. This is the one who had healed his mother-in-law. So Peter knows, I will do as you say, and they let down the nets. Jesus' request, by the way, is completely contrary to all logic, to all reason. He told Peter to fish in the deep water, wrong place. In the morning, wrong time. Joel Green, the commentator, cites researcher David Biven's article, Miraculous Catch. Biven identifies these nets not as sane nets, but trammel nets made of linen, visible to fish during the day and so used at night, requiring then two to four men to deploy them, needing washing each morning. And Biven writes, during daylight fish would see these nets, avoid them. Thus these nets here are for night fishing only. Everything the Lord is asking him is not logical, not reasonable, but he's giving him ultimate acquiescence. He is open. He is responsible, saying yes in spite of all previous experiences. Master, we worked hard all night, caught nothing. We worked hard. That term to have worked is of a a form that the noun form is translated kapos, K-O-P-O-S. We have labored. We have worked to the point of physical exhaustion. I think we get our English word kaput from it. That's how tired they are. And Peter responds, but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. You see, in spite of it flying in the face of everything natural, flying in the face of all their previous experience, and flying in the face of the reaction of others, think of what the other pro-fishermen are thinking. Thinking what the people on the shore are also thinking, is he mad? Has Peter gone mad? This year we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, the war between the states. One of my favorite characters, men to study and to research in that entire conflict is a man by the name of Thomas Stonewall Jackson. During the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee sent word to Thomas Jackson, to Stonewall Jackson, that the next time he rode in the direction of the headquarters, the commander-in-chief would like to see him. Lee also specified to Jackson that this matter was of no great importance. But rising early in the morning, Stonewall Jackson rode eight miles to General Lee's headquarters against a storm of wind and snow and arrived just as Lee was finishing breakfast. Much surprised, Lee inquired why Jackson had come through such a storm. General Jackson replied, quote, But you said that you wished to see me. General Lee's slightest wish is a supreme command to me. End of quote. Children learn the verse, Ephesians 6, 1, children obey. We grow older through the years, decades now, from learning in Ephesians 6, 1. All those children in Sunday school know that verse. And yet, the hair falls. We get a little older, a little stiffer, and yet we are children of our Heavenly Father. And we ought to what? Obey. You see, come follow the Lord means giving Him initial access, being where He can speak to us, listening when He speaks in the Word, giving Him ultimate acquiescence so that when He speaks to us, however strange it might sound, 
however countercultural it might appear, however unnatural it may feel, however embarrassing it might be. Yes, Lord, at your bidding, I respond. It means, lastly, not only giving him initial access, not only giving him ultimate acquiescence, but giving him willing abandonment of our lives. Verses 6 through 11. Meyer writes to Peter, surprised the boat, propelled now by either oar or sail, had passed over many well-known fishing grounds to Peter and had kept its course to the midst of the lake. And now, at this time, the Lord told them to let down the nets. I want you to see something here. Something about the omniscience of Jesus. One writer writes, The challenge always facing fishermen is finding the fish. Even experienced fishermen using the latest fish-finding sonar often come up empty. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, knew exactly where the fish were. As the one who created everything, Colossians 1.16, he has an exhaustive knowledge of all creatures, even to the point of knowing when a sparrow falls to the ground, Matthew 10.29, 10, since there is no creature hidden from his sight, Hebrews 4.13. If Peter is yawning and rubbing his eyes as he drops the nets over the side because he's tired, he's now shocked to the point that he's wide awake. For we read in verse 6, When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat who came and helped them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Peter could hardly hang on to the dragnet. Such an incredible catch of fish filled, he frantically calls to the others. And Peter now calls and James and John respond. And as they harvest their catch, two boats, each over seven and a half feet wide, over 27 feet long, filled now and begin to sink. Several tons of fish are hauled ashore that day amidst, think about it, the roar of a delighted crowd watching all this. Just think of the people's response as they see this. If Jesus' command surprised Peter and the others, the result utterly dumbfounded them. Nothing in their experience could have ever prepared them for such an unheard of catch in the middle of a day. But an omniscient, all-knowing Savior knew exactly where the fish were. Later on, you'll read in Matthew 17, 27, that he will tell Peter to go and find a fish out of all the fish. One fish that he knows of has a coin in its mouth. He knew exactly where that one fish was. Go find that spot. Take that fish, open its mouth. There will be a coin. I want you to look at two sides of it. Bring it here. He knows the location of the fish, his omniscience. And the size of the catch shows his omnipotence. Peter and the others are shocked and amazed at the number of fish, knowing there's no human way possible to explain it. Nothing had they ever witnessed was like this. They knew they were witnessing something confirming the truth that the powers belong to God. Psalm 62.11. It's a raw outpouring of power, folks. Massive nature miracle. And trauma falls upon Peter's amazed soul. Why? Because of a deep consciousness of personal 
inability. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Peter, realizing that the one standing near him who could see the depths of the lake can look into the depths of his heart. And so immediately when Peter saw this, verse 8, he fell at his knees, Jesus' knees, and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. A series of thoughts flashed through his mind like lightning, and now he knew something. He's in the presence of God, so much so that he changes the names. Before Epistantes, master, commander, boss. You're the boss. Now he says, Curios, Lord. He falls down before him and he says, Lord, depart from me. And he's not speaking about his own sins, but he's speaking about the fact that I realize I'm in the presence of God. How great thou art. And I'm just a man. That's what he's doing. Leave me. I'm not worthy. Do you know something fascinating? He realizes his condition now, and he asks Jesus to leave. In his immature state, he's just starting to follow. He asks Jesus to leave him. In John 21, after the resurrection, something very similar happens. Seven men go out fishing all night. They catch nothing. And you read in John 21, 4 through 7, Jesus then, they don't know who he is, but... He says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. They catch 153 fish. And someone says, this is reminiscent of this episode. It's the Lord. And even after he had sinned then, but now more mature in his faith, instead of running to part, he runs to Jesus, doesn't he? That's the difference between immature and mature in the faith. I'm still kneeling here because I learned something in the last hour I did this, okay? When I was in my 30s, I could get up really quickly. (laughs) All righty, okay, back to the passage at hand, all right? As you look at this, he calls him God, Master. Notice something. Willing abandonment in his life because of a deep consciousness of personal inability. But in verses 10 and 11 wholehearted, willing abandonment because of a deepening love expressed by Christ. Seeking to calm and reassure him, Jesus said to Simon, Fear not. You don't need to be terrified of me. Deuteronomy 13, 4, You shall know the Lord your God and fear him. And his fear of love, awe, and adoration now. Peter showed his humility and Jesus says, From now on, you will be catching men. There's a nuance here, this little phrase, catch men. Zeus agrian in the Greek. Two words, Zeus, alive. Agrian, to catch, to hunt. It means to catch alive. To capture alive, to spare life. From now on, you will catch men alive. No longer catching fish in order to sell them in a marketplace, but now you will catch people to give them liberty to set them free, catch and release to eternal life. I love what R. Kent Hughes says, catching men for life, what a glorious description of the gospel ministry. Amen? That's going to be your vocation. You catch men to give them life, to catch alive. 
And we see a whole willing now abandonment of his life, thirdly and lastly, because of a reoriented goal, now to glorify God rather than to seek any personal gain with this we close. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Folks, this is now the formal occasion. This is the permanent call on their life where they will turn their backs, they bring those boats to shore, leave everything, follow Jesus. Two important truths. Peter and the others would follow now and serve God rather than pursue any personal interests. They left their business. They left their career. What would the future hold? We need to work out some of those details. Nope, never even think like that. They didn't know any details of the future. They left the security of their business and all that it offered, meaning dollars. Biggest catch of their careers at the biggest moment of their entire fishing career, on the biggest catch that ever took place there to date, and they walk away from it. These men were not born preachers. What did they know about religion or theology? I want to read something from a book by V. Samuel Setuck, What to Expect in Seminary. Setuck writes this, Without fail, those whom Jesus called immediately said yes. Without an apparent thought about the fishing businesses they had worked so hard to establish or the families that depended on them, they left everything behind, followed Jesus on down the shore. With each step, they moved farther and farther away from the people they had been and came closer and closer to becoming the people God had created them to be. As they discovered, to live with Jesus meant by definition they would change. Setuck writes, true discipleship means that the disciple will be at odds with former beliefs and old lifestyles. True discipleship means that when Christ is done with us, we will not be the same person we were. It involves openness to the future and the expectation that we will change as we walk closely with God. And then on page 75 of Setuck's book, we read further, Lest you begin to worry about the contributions your background will make to your seminary experience, I urge you to put all worry aside. We call this second career. God's calling today, by the way, the majority of people entering ministry or going off to seminary are second careerers. In speaking with the man who came to Drew Seminary where Setuck works, after having been a landscape architect, I discovered that he was afraid that he had nothing to draw upon from his former life that would assist him either in seminary or ultimately in the ministry. After all, what could days spent designing landscapes that would enhance the beauty of their surroundings and move the people who viewed them to appreciate the display of nature in front of them possibly contribute to future days spent with people struggling to make sense of the world and their place in it? I challenge the man to resist the obvious temptation to check his prior work and experience at the door of Seminary Hall. In all of these facets of his former secular work, I saw traits that would apply to ministry. You see, having been a landscape engineer, he was an administrator. He was a pragmatic and objective realist and a dreamer, a visionary, all at the same time. Every one of those skills are necessary in ministry today. In other words, God uses what you surrender to him. Give it to him and he will not disappoint you. He designed you after all for his glory. They left all and followed. And that term followed is heavily freighted, signifying the deepest inward attachment to him. 
Again, Arcant Hughes says, this account applies to all of us who claim to be children of the King. Jesus calls us to diverse vocations, but all of us are to, vote, to devote our lives to catching men and women alive. That's to be our perpetual vocation. Amen? That's what we're doing. Jesus performed a miracle and completely changed Simon's heart, his life, his future. Could he be doing the same miracle in our lives, your life? How committed to him are you? Does he have access? Do you respond yes? And then whatever you want, Lord. I'm going to close. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I want you to listen as I voice a prayer. In his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, Ken Geyer expresses his heart's desire in a prayer that's fitting for this occasion today. Would you pray with me? His prayer says, Call me, Lord, out from a shallow faith near the shore, which requires no risks and offers no rewards. Call me to a deeper commitment to you. And when you call, grant that I would be quick in my boat, swift to my oars and fast with my nets. And I pray, grant me the eyes to see who it is who labors by my side, an awesome and almighty God. Take me to a place where I have worked hard by my own strength and yet ended up with only empty nets. Take me there to show me the depths of your dominion and the net-breaking fullness of your power. Keep me ever aware that you are Lord and ever aware that I am a sinful person. And in that knowledge, Lord, keep me ever on my knees before you. At your bidding, O Master, I will let down my nets. And at your bidding, I will leave them forever behind. For what you have to offer is infinitely more than all the seas of this world ever could. Amen.